Hi, this is Alex May, a writer and former bartender. And this is Sounds of New York City. The Gods Must Have Missed the A-Train by Tama Filianga. Life's a funny thing. It often takes you places you didn't intend to go and brings you back to conclusions that you already knew. A type of clarity that only presents itself to you once you've been drowned in adversity. When I was younger, I had an insatiable thirst for culture, of any kind. I sought it everywhere, in film, music, friends, education, and drugs. With a ferocious tenacity into whatever limits I could discover in theaters, classrooms, parties, or back alleys. The word is probably extremist, if I'm being honest. Either way, like any other coming-of-age restless suburbanite, I moved to the city with the most culture I could think of. The Big Apple. Yes, I called it that. Because I was hopeful and naive. Like someone who refers to Los Angeles as Hollywood in that same cheeky intonation of wistful glamour. Or broken dreams. So I was basic. Whatever. Most importantly, I was ready for a change. I'd exhausted everything my small town of a home nest could provide and I decided I was ready to take on the world and seek enlightenment in a place where I could forge my adult persona on the streets of New York City. She answered in kind. Within two days of landing at John Franklin Kennedy Airport, I'd been robbed of everything I owned. On my second night in New York City, I was transferring from one hostel to another in Times Square when I was mugged on the A-train. I woke up hours later at 7 a.m., lying in the middle of a crowd of people looking up at two dozen sets of rush-hour transit folks sneering at what I guess they thought was the idiot drunk who passed out in car number two. They watched on as I slowly got to my feet and put together last night's events. They watched as I cried when I discovered that I had no luggage, no wallet, no phone, no passport, no driver's license, no identification, no bank card, no credit card, and no metro card. But they looked away when I screamed out that I'd been robbed and asked why no one had called the cops. New Yorkers are just funny that way. That's when I took my first trip to a New York City police station. That was a mistake. I won't say which station it was, but I can tell you that they were not very helpful. When I got to the main desk, I told the officer my story. He didn't believe me. Why would he? I was a scrappy, ethnically ambiguous 20-something with a black eye and bruised forehead who probably looked like he'd been up for the last week smoking crack and not paying taxes, raving about how he'd been wronged. Story as old as time. I freaked the fuck out when he didn't believe me. Mistake number two. I received a 24-hour watch in police custody for my hysterics, which means they bring you to the back and put you in a small room with nice iron bars next to all the other ethnically ambiguous crack-smoking non-taxpayers. And they can legally detain you there for a whole day under their own pretense until they decide whether you're worthy of a charge or not. At least I had a place to sleep for the night. The next day was worse. After I was released from the police station, I went to the Bryant Park, New York Public Library. As I'd learned from my new Iron Bar Buds, it was a free city resource for using computers. I was banking with Wells Fargo, which at the time had no locations in New York City. But it didn't matter because my entire bank account had been depleted of all funds. I couldn't afford the hostel I was staying in. I couldn't open a bank account because I didn't have money or any identification and I couldn't get any identification without any money. 
As it turns out, there are a number of paradoxical pitfalls that only take one really bad day to bring back into view. And to top it off, I couldn't call anyone for help because my phone had suddenly grown wings and flown to the loving hands of a hoodless figure whom I didn't even catch the name of. Rude. I was broke and homeless. My naive young ass had been whooped and whooped well. My immediate drive now is to scrounge up enough money to buy a plane ticket home. Do not pass go. Do not get robbed 200 more dollars. I slept on the A train at night because it's the longest running stretch of MTA track from beginning to end, which, as I had already learned, means you could sleep uninterrupted for hours before someone kicked you off the subway at the end of the line. At which point, you could just walk across the platform, get on the train heading the opposite direction, rinse and repeat. I wasn't afraid that I would be mugged again because I didn't have anything left to take. I scrounged up enough change to buy rolling papers, and walked through midtown Manhattan picking out old, half-finished cigarette butts from standing ashtrays in front of buildings to make, quite literally, second-hand cigarettes and sell them as Lucy's outside the homeless shelter on 41st and 10th. I ate at soup kitchens. As it turns out, at nearly any point during the daytime between normal working hours of 9 to 5, there is at least one soup kitchen open and serving in Manhattan. I knew most of them. My goal was clear scrap and save enough money to buy a plane ticket the hell out of New York City. I had no idea what I would have to do or how I would do it, but I had already set my mind to it. How long could it take? Seven months can seem like an eternity when you're running for your life on the streets. Today, I'm running from an Asian produce market owner on 10th Avenue with a bag of oranges tucked under my arm. It's not even nine in the morning yet. I know for a fact that he'll only keep up the chase for another three blocks before he gives up. Asian market owners will always chase you the farthest. Off the Times Square A-Train subway station is a homeless shelter called the Covenant House, a place I sometimes frequented, but more importantly, where I'd made a few friends. I spent a good majority of my mornings with a select crew of the other unfortunates at a Starbucks on 10th Avenue, sharing one cup of coffee for hours and playing Sudoku from the post, a pastime I still indulge in to this day. By 11, we're sitting in Times Square smoking cigarettes, hitting on tourists, and waiting for the comedy ticket salesman to get into a fight. There's at least one fight from rival salesmen that breaks out every day. By lunchtime, we're sitting at a park bench ogling at the sea of flesh that is the Bryant Park lawn. At some point, some woman stuck in an office job nearby the park was tired of her paled complexion and the demanding rigidity of her job and had a stroke of brilliance. She'd sunbathe at the park during lunch hour. This notion took hold fast, and it didn't take long before a Bryant Park lawn was loaded with beach towels being pulled out of briefcases and power suits dropping to expose meticulously placed bikinis. By three in the afternoon, we're at the soup kitchen in the Bowery. Daytime soup kitchens are like school cafeterias. It's a time to catch up with other people your age who are hungry, usually convicts on hard times who can't get a job either. Heroin addicts rebelling against their rich suburban upbringing or the classic runaway. You eat huddled over your food, always. Catching up is short, because I have to be back in Midtown to catch the rush hour foot traffic. The percentage of homeless that did have jobs will be on their way back to the shelter, and I'd be able to sell a few Lucy's. This new lifestyle wasn't without its perks, though. Things were simple. At their simplest, I mean. My needs were basic. I was free to come and go as I pleased with no restrictions. And the city was my oyster. Who thought that was a good metaphor? 
I now knew the city intimately, in a way that only a select few other unfortunates did. One day we were leaving the Starbucks and wandering through Hell's Kitchen, when I'd stepped into a puddle of highly questionable fluid, only to discover that I'd worn a hole through the bottom of my converse. Black, high tops, classics, I know. They say chucks get better with age, and my pair of Timothy Daltons was on their last legs. I'm already a one-pair-of-shoes type of guy, so this was dire. Having no shoes was loss of clothing. Loss of clothing was the first step into street life permanence. It left room to be replaced by an article of clothing of equal to or lesser value than what was originally there. It was time to sit down and reassess my decision-making paradigm. I'd been picking up a few jobs here and there, with little to show for it, save but a few hundred bucks stuffed in my sock. It's nearly impossible to pick up a legitimate job without any identification. Which only led me to one conclusion. Money. I wasn't sure how much a plane ticket would cost, but I figured I was still a few hundred shy of reaching enough to buy an impromptu ticket. I was seated alone, crisscross applesauce outside the Amish produce market, caught in another one of those paradoxical pitfalls, when an older woman called out to me from behind. Hey, you got time, kid? I need your help, she said. I followed her through the apartment doorway next to the produce market. It was my lucky day. I need to move everything out of this apartment today, but I don't have a truck and just have my granddaughter and myself. Can you help? She explained. Apparently, this elderly woman and her granddaughter were being priced out of their building. Gentrification strikes again. They needed to move all of their belongings from the place in Hell's Kitchen to a new apartment in Inwood. She said she'd pay me a few hundred bucks. My day had come. I was more than enthusiastic. I spent the whole day hand-carrying all of their belongings onto the A-train uptown and dropping them off at their new apartment in Inwood. It took us eight round trips. The old lady paid me in cash, which is the only type of currency I could accept anyway. Afterwards, her granddaughter decided to pay me back personally by taking me out for a few beers at a bar down the street from her grandma's new apartment. I was thrilled that they didn't card. In fact, they didn't care at all about anything. The place was probably on the verge of being shut down by the health department. It was a filthy dive bar. It looked like ground zero for syphilis. Anyway, we made small talk. I told her I was new in town, that I was having a tough time settling in. She seemed to be very taken with me. I don't know, maybe she thought her father wouldn't approve of me or something. She wasn't wrong. After a few shot and beer specials, she whispers in my ear, Let's go somewhere. Obviously, there's a snag in this plan. I live on the A-train. I recommend that we go back to her grandma's apartment, but she says she can't with her grandma in the other room. I then suggest the other apartment that we just moved everything out of. So at 3 a.m. we grabbed some roadies and brown bags and got back onto the downtown bound A-train to Hell's Kitchen. One thing leads to another and we find ourselves on an empty subway car just about rounding third base when she comes up with a seemingly exciting notion. I've never had sex in between the subway cars, she explains. Yes, that's correct. We in fact did try to have sex between the subway cars and the downtown A-train to Hell's Kitchen. It was the worst experience of my life. I wouldn't recommend it or wish it upon anyone. It was not like risky business. The lighting was as bright as a dentist's office. Phil Collins was not playing ominously throughout the cosmos, and I did not had the Tom Cruise crazy train sex magic. I was brazenly kicked awake the next morning in the old lady's former apartment living room 
by what I can only assume was the realtor. Her granddaughter was nowhere to be found. I grabbed my clothes and ran about three blocks half-naked down Ninth Avenue before I realized that no one was chasing me. I was unaffected by the whole situation of the past 24 hours. I didn't care. I had all the money I needed to get the fuck out of Dodge. It was still morning, so I grabbed a cup of coffee, tried to shake my hangover, and sat at a public bench on the Times Square ACE train subway platform, waiting for the next JFK-bound train. A funny thing happened, though, while I was waiting. When the first train approached, I couldn't get up. My legs had frozen up. I just sat there pondering, watching as people got on and off, on and off. The same thing happened with the next train, and the train after that, and the train after that. As the doors opened to each train that stopped, I was reminded of every single event that had happened to me on that stupid fucking train. By three o'clock in the afternoon, I realized that I had ate, slept, drank, sexed, and been robbed on the same train. Then it hit me. After seven months of living in the city, pretty much the worst of what could possibly happen to me had already happened. And happened on that damn train. As if whatever powers that be had turned a blind eye or missed the A train. Like the gods above with their chubby little fingers holding magnifying glasses atop the anthill of New York City couldn't see the goings-on on this particular strip of MTA track. If you see a suspicious package or activity on the platform or train, please keep it the fuck to yourself. Where was I going to? Home to stagnancy and mediocrity? Stand clear of the closing opportunities, please. I knew what was waiting for me there. How desolate and despondent the idea of returning back to my place of origin seemed. It seemed defeatist. I already withstood the city's best one-two combo and was still standing. Or sitting, rather. It was a character-defining moment for me when I decided that I would stick it out in the big apple of hope and culture that I once thought it was. I would let this A-train go by and continue finding my way on the streets of New York City.